0: launch and optimize web pages fast that means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge learn why teams like dropbox ideo and orange theory all trust webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com hi i'm jim stengel and i help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow for seven years i was the global marketing officer for procter and gamble where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Raja Menar, the chief marketing and communications officer for MasterCard. Raja is also a board member for the PPL Corporation, and the president of the World Federation of Advertising, a global trade association. And on top of all of that, Raja has just published a book with HarperCollins. It's called Quantum Marketing, Mastering the New Marketing Mindset for Tomorrow's Consumers. With the publication of his book, Raja joins an elite tier of CMOs. He is an author and CMO, there are not many, and he is the first three-time guest on the CMO Podcast. Raja was an early guest on my podcast, and then he joined me last May to talk about how he was leading his team during the early days of the pandemic. Now he is back to share his lessons from his new provocative book. This is my conversation with Raja Rajamanar. Welcome, Raja, to your third appearance on the CMO Podcast. By the way, a record. And the last interview was in May 2020, very different times at the early part of the pandemic. And you told me at the time that you were doing two personal projects during the pandemic, learning Spanish and writing a book. So congratulations. You have published your book, which we will talk about in great depth today. But I want to know, how did the Spanish go?
1: The Spanish is still going. It's an,
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's an
1: ocean. And uh, I, I must say that today I'm able to read and understand Spanish emails. I'm able to actually write Spanish emails or emails in Spanish, which is good. Speaking is proving to be very difficult beyond the usual small words and small sentences here and there. So now I'm watching Narcos on the recommendation of my teacher. So what she says is now picking up all bad words (laughs) and not necessarily the actual language itself. So the going has been slower than what I would have liked, but it's going strong.
0: So how is Narcos? Are you enjoying that?
1: Yes, it is, it is pretty good. I think I'm enjoying, I'm now trying to understand without following the language. So I don't know if I'm defeating the very purpose for which I'm (laughs) watching it, but yes, it is pretty fascinating. It's a different world altogether.
0: Well, I know your goal was to speak to your team in Latin America in their native language. So good luck with that. Maybe we'll have you on a fourth podcast to tell us how that went. And we'll do it in Spanish. Okay, all right. I've got some catching up to do. So listen, I want to talk about your new book. And it's really, I, I read it cover to cover, and it really is an urgent call for change. And I want to talk about that and your learning and your content. But first, I want to talk a bit about the process. And the first question about that is when and why did you decide to write this book? What was the catalyst or the inspiration?
1: So I wanted to write the book for almost 10 years now. And my father has written a book in English literature, and his father has written a book. So I wanted to write a book. I didn't know on what, but I wanted to do it sometime. So post-financial crisis, I used to work in Citibank in those days. I thought I'll write maybe a book on financial crisis, but then I somehow could not get myself to enough level of depth of that subject. So I could not do it. Then I wanted to do maybe on uh, marketing, which is my area of passion, but I'd just been you know, putting it off, putting it off. And then finally, when I decided to do it, that was in uh, the last quarter of 2019, I said, now I'll have to sit and actually start writing it. Otherwise, it'll never happen. Uh, My wife was going to India. So I was going to have free time on hand. And I was supposed to babysit my dogs over the winter vacation. So I said, this is the time where I'll actually do it. And I utilized that time extremely productively. And I finished my draft uh, or the the first manuscript fairly rapidly. Uh, And uh, it it was actually end-to-end. The draft took me about three weeks of time. And then it was all, of course, the refinement and validating some of the hypotheses, getting it reviewed by a few peers and by some subject matter experts. Actually, that process took much longer. Uh, But starting in December, I started in December. And I think the final, final thing was all done by July. And it was there with uh, HarperCollins leadership ready to be printed.
0: So nine months, That's, that's fantastic. You know, it's been out since early February, so not that long. Uh, what's been the reaction so far from your team, your partners, your agencies? How have they reacted? And has it led to any different kind of discussions or initiatives or reflection? Yeah.
1: So I think, firstly, starting with the peers uh, in the industry, it has been very positive. Uh, and, uh, you know, because obviously, when I'm making some wild statements, uh, you know, people can throw stones at you and, uh, you know, you need to defend, but I think there has been, uh, uh, you know, instant agreement from most of the people saying that we, you have actually articulated a lot of what we are seeing. Uh, so that was very reassuring to me right up front from the peers. And uh, uh, then I, when I went to the uh, professors of marketing at some of the reputed colleges, again, the feedback has been fantastic uh not just the people who endorsed my book but also the other professors and i spoke at uh, at least 20 25 universities so far and the uh, marketing professors were all absolutely uh, you know uh, positive and in praise of the book that was very good then it came to my team members i think you know the team members felt very proud of it uh, first and foremost because a lot of their good work i have actually captured and encapsulated it etc so they feel very proud about it Uh, And the second thing is for us, you know, as if you are Procter & Gamble, you're considered to be the king of or queen of marketing. Same thing with Unilever. MasterCard is not really known to be a marketing company per se. So from that point of view, it gives the company a little bit more of a positive uh, aura as far as marketing is concerned. So everyone on the team, therefore, they thoroughly enjoyed it. They were highly complimentary. And uh, uh, so that's one part of it. The other interesting thing is we have a lot of clients, both in the, on the banking side as well as on the merchant side, right? Uh, and there has been extraordinary uh, response from them. So now what my team members are doing is they're actually going and taking those books and then presenting it to uh, our clients. And, uh, and then actually I'm organizing various, uh, what do you call, one-hour kind of a talk, Uh, to those people I'm giving the talk, and they're really enjoying it. So this is something which is giving a wonderful opportunity for my team to connect with our clients uh, and establish a good relationship and a rapport and also offer them anything that we can do to help them, uh, you know, that we could do it. So therefore, they're finding it both utilitarian as well as a matter of pride for them.
0: That's beautiful. Hey, as I said, I read it cover to cover, and I, I must say, as we move into the content discussion on this book, you are a very clear and lively writer. And I think it's hard to do both of those, to be clear and to be lively. And you make these complex subjects that we throw around a lot in business and in marketing very, very approachable. And I think and that's the first step to build confidence that you can tackle them. So I just want to ask you before we jump to the content, is that a, has that been a strength of yours, Raja, to make the complex simple, to be clear yet lively? You know, your your training is not in in literature. No, <laughs> but I'm, but you have done a, a good bit of writing and speaking in your life. But has this always been a strength, or something you feel like you have built over time into a strength?
1: Uh, see, firstly, basic training. I'm a chemical engineer, so there is a sense of structural approach to anything. Uh, but you know what? I think uh, one of my strengths has been as far as, uh, you know, concepts are concerned. Till the time I'm crystal clear in my own mind, I grapple with it. I don't let go of it. I try to poke it from every single angle. And once I am able to articulate it in a very, very clear form to myself, then I know how I've internalized it. And I keep telling my team members as well, whatever we say, it has to be understandable to a 10-year-old child. Let's try to simplify, not hide behind jargon, demystify things. That's when I think it really becomes actionable. Otherwise, it seems, yeah, it's in the haloed uh, shelves or halls somewhere, uh, but you're not looking for that erudite stature, but you're looking for a practical util- utilization of the concepts and so on. So simplification is something which I've been focusing on forever. And that was also reinforced throughout my career, that people would say, you know, whatever be the concept, if you give it to Raja, he will grapple with it, and he will literally chew on it, and then come back to us in very simple, easy to understand concepts is what he presents to us. So that's what I tried to do in the book also. And honestly, I found that a number of these topics, uh, many people are not very comfortable with, but then when they have reached a certain stage in their careers, they are very hesitant to ask. Because if you ask you are in some sense, admitting your not knowing it or ignorance, call it whichever way it is. So the best thing is then, you know, see see what the reality is, simplify it so that whether you are at the CMO level or you're at the entry level, you can easily understand. That's how I approached it.
0: We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So, what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Let's get into some of these lessons and the concepts that are in the book that you have demystified. And I I would start by the discussion with, you know, every brand has a very clear architecture. You know, they have a clear purpose and architecture. You know... Apple has a clear architecture. You know, the best Procter and Gamble brands have a clear architecture, Tide for example. This book has a great architecture. You know, you you, you as a reader you you follow through and you it's it's a coherent story. And your architecture is you describe these four paradigms or eras of marketing and you go back sometimes centuries or millennial to illustrate that. And You and most of the book is about not these four paradigms, you set the stage with them, but the fifth paradigm that we are going into, which you call quantum marketing. And I want to just for our listeners, pull a quote or two out in the book about quantum marketing to set the stage. And the, and the first quote is The fifth paradigm will bring about a stunning change in the business of marketing. Marketers, in particular, and organizations in general, are unprepared for the fifth paradigm. At stake is no less than the future of how marketing will exist, what shape it will take, and the context and circumstances under which it will operate. Whoa! I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a dramatic statement. So I want you to start with that, Rajah. You set up an urgent case for education and change and proactivity in the book to succeed and win and understand this, this fifth dimension, this quantum. So could you tell us a bit about this quantum marketing era and this opportunity for marketers to renew themselves in this era? So I'll give three uh, you know,
1: quick responses to that, uh, Jim. So firstly, if you see how marketing has been evolving, every time it was moving from one paradigm to the next paradigm, essentially, it was driven by two technologies at a time. So from uh, paradigm one to paradigm two, storytelling became a big deal because you had to connect with consumers at an emotional level. And storytelling was brought to life in a brilliant way, first by radio and then by television. Right? And different forms of television, cable, and all that stuff. But broadly as two technologies which disrupted marketing in a good way. Paradigm two to paradigm three was data uh, and analytics, which till then were outside the purview of marketing, have really taken root in marketing. And number two was internet, which changed everything. Digital marketing was born. Paradigm three to four was social media with the scaling of Facebook and iPhone, which launched the era of mobile devices that are always connected. And each time Tutu Technologies came, we had a huge disruption and marketing has to be thought through and evolve. But we are now at the verge of more than a dozen technologies that are coming at us. Each one exceptionally powerful with deep implications on consumers' lives, and on organization's way of doing business and therefore as a consequence to marketing, right? So you talk of artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, holographic projections, wearables, internet of things, autonomous cars. It's like, you know, literally like so many technologies are coming. And when I spoke with uh, my peers, because I am with the World uh, Federation of Advertisers, I had the opportunity to interact with a large large number of these uh, CMOs who are my peers and their direct reports. Most of us are not well equipped. We are not even thinking about them. Oh, when will when they will come? We will figure out kind of an approach. My worry is unless you prepare for it right from now, you will be made a little obsolete and totally cut out of the process. And I'll give you, uh, this brings me to the second point, which is, you know, till second paradigm, marketers ruled the roost because they understood emotions and aesthetics and uh, you know all those good things, psychology and all that. But when data and internet came about in the mid nineties, marketers started losing ground because from right brain thinking, now they have to shift to left brain thinking that did not come naturally to them. And if you see most of the marketing platforms that have come out during from that time onwards were not driven by marketing marketers at all. These are some technology guys or some data guys who had an inkling of marketing. They saw the opportunity and they literally hijacked the agenda. And marketers are meekly trying to still follow and understand, get their heads around. So this is the second thing. And the third part of it is surveys have shown that CEOs, 70% plus, have said that they don't have confidence in either their CMOs or their marketing departments to drive growth. That's a scary situation, 70% plus, which means they don't have the credibility as a function, as marketing, right? And as a result of which they're taking actions. A lot of CMO roles are being eliminated and not some obscure industrial companies, but you're talking about hardcore packaged goods like Johnson & Johnson as an example, right? That's one. Second, they're fragmenting marketing. And the four P's of marketing which we learned when we went back to school, Philip Kotler and all that, Now, product is not handled by marketing. There is a chief product officer. Uh, pricing is not handled. It's the pricing, it's the products or finance that handle it or salespeople, depending on B2B or B2C. And then you've got, they don't handle logistics anyway which is placed. They're barely holding on to or hanging on to one P, which is promotions. And that's not very great. Uh, So they're in the thick of an existential crisis. uh, And uh, as I said, because the CEOs don't have confidence uh, in in the market, they're now creating new roles like chief growth officer, chief revenue officer, chief customer officer. If you take away growth, revenue, and customers from marketing, what else is marketing there for? unless it wants to be called a fluffy function, which does some creativity for creativity's sake, that's not how it should be. So with an existential crisis, lack of confidence amongst the CEOs, not understanding even the current technologies properly, because you ask many CMOs to put their hands on their hearts and, uh, and tell them, do you understand exactly what happens in programmatic? Do you understand what, no, the answer is no. So if you are grappling with the technologies of the third and the fourth paradigm, my worry is now you're going to get fifth paradigm with the 12 technologies plus. And if you don't grapple it, somebody else will steal the agenda totally away because already you are losing it. That will become, the demise will become much more accelerated. And that, that's why my call to action and urging people to please understand, learn, invest time in learning these things. And once you get your head around it, then at least you know you'll have some idea of where to take your organization, how to position it for the future, and so on and so forth. But right now, that's not yet happening.
0: Well, I'm not, I'm not going to let you off the hook on this. Late before we sign off, I'm going to ask you for your advice and the three things that leaders should do based on the learning and lessons in your book. But I want to make it a bit more personal right now. You have seemed to crack some of this in your role at Mastercard. You have the confidence of your CEO your role is broad, you've taken the time yourself to invest in understanding what's happening with these multiple technologies, you're advancing your marketing at MasterCard, you have a very successful brand. So how did you yourself, Raja, I mean, you've written about it, but how did you change how you work, how you spend your time, who you, who you meet with, uh, how, you, how did you change your work to keep yourself Relevant, informed, and developing strategies for your brand to do well in this quantum era. So in
1: fact, if I look at the history of marketing at MasterCard, marketing was seen to be a very, very creative function, extremely creative. They created uh, after all the priceless campaign, you know, which is so iconic and still after 24 years, it's alive and kicking. So it had a good credibility on the creative side. And uh, they also had a very good image in terms of as people who conduct amazing events. Uh, And they would do phenomenal events and uh, all the sponsorships and all that stuff. But that's pretty much it. So my previous boss at uh, Citibank was Ajay Banga. So I worked for him for uh, uh, nearly 15 years there at Citibank. So we both, uh, you know, he was my marketing boss. He was the, you know, head of region for marketing and I was part of the sub-region division, etc. So we, we moved together. So when he joined Mastercard and became the CEO, he asked me to come and join him. And he says, look, Raja, this is a great team, but they need a strong business leadership. And we need to bring about the similar kind of a transformation you and I have done when we were back at Citibank. So my objective, therefore, was to come in and see how the strengths that we have got, we really make them more broadly applicable and integrated with the entire business, as opposed to just being a creating creative house. They sit in their own corner, they do their own stuff kind of a thing. We need to mainstream marketing. So I came with that mandate, which obviously uh, gave me some amount of advantage to start with, right? And then the second thing, of course, is if you don't carry the system with you, there is an organ rejection. So my first aspect of uh, getting into the job was to really connect with every one of my peers and understand from them, what is their perception of marketing? What do they think marketing should be doing? What are the gaps that are there currently? And how do they think I should go about fixing those gaps? And I think those are probably the, one of the most useful set of discussions because on the one hand, I was demonstrating my willingness to listen. I was reaching out to them uh, and, and giving importance and attention to their points. So that, I think, starts building bridges between me and them. When it is a bridge between me and them, it's actually a bridge between my function and their function, which is extremely helpful. So this is one. Then internally, what I did was saying, that what exactly does marketing do here? So, I called all my leadership. What do we do here? So, we just listed out all the things that we did. So, we said, okay, let's classify into buckets and then figure out what we are doing. They eventually boiled down to two buckets, which is we handle brilliant events, we produce pretty advertisements. That's pretty much it. So, and both of them were helping the brand. So, then we started saying, okay, what should the reason why MasterCard should even have a marketing department? So, we started with a mission for marketing. Meaning, why do we exist? And we came up with three pillars. We said, of course, we have to be the stewards of the brand. We are not the owners of the brand. Everyone is a brand ambassador in the company. We are the stewards of the brand. We need to build, nurture, and protect the brand. Second, we need to drive the business. We need to fuel the business. If you were to see what our aspiration would be and should be, is that if you ask anyone on the uh you know, sales side or on the business side as we call it, uh, the PNL owners, they should say that Ma- MasterCards marketing is their single biggest competitive advantage. Right? How do we get there? Obviously, by generating leads, by generating sales. So we started getting into winning deals, keeping deals, pricing deals, and uh, uh, giving a perceived value of the deals being higher. Pitching to the clients, building relationships, the whole focus changed. And the third one we said is, we should build platforms for a sustainable competitive advantage for MasterCard. So that's how we began building priceless platforms. So convert priceless from an advertising platform to an experiential platform and a bunch of things around. So these are the three pillars that we said we will go with. And once we had that, uh, everyone understood it across the board. It's very simple. And then I also made sure that all my peers bought into that. And collectively, we owned it. And we said we will do it. So that was one big thing. The other thing I'd also say is that there was one of the accusations about marketing was that, look, they are very, very territorial. They hold everything secretive. If you ask them what they have spent on a particular event, they always dodge you. They don't tell you. So I went to my CFO. And she was a very tough lady, uh, uh, Martina. And uh, so Martina said, you guys, you spend money and I really don't know what you're getting and all that stuff. I said, Martina, I agree with you. So why don't we do one thing? Let's appoint a CFO who reports jointly to me and to you. So this person will give you total transparency into everything else in my area. Believe me, that single act changed the relationship between finance and marketing once and forever. And I told this CFO, and we selected jointly once and appointed. So this CFO, the mandate is don't hide. We have nothing to hide. If we messed up, we messed up. If we did something well, let it be so. But we will not fudge, we will not hide anything. Let's be radically transparent. That worked so well with the finance department. That was a game changer for us. And from then on, we started working on each pillar, tracking our progress and so on and so forth. And I think I would say bulk of it was winning over the culture. Rest of it was far simpler. And also likewise, how do you deal with your agency? You know, whenever there is a problem, the first thing is, okay, let's fire the agency. Let's get somebody else. These guys have become very comfortable and uh, they're charging us a huge amount of money. They're not responding fast enough. So I would say always, you know, you cannot keep uh, shifting your agencies just like that. I believe that they need to understand the soul of your brand and the context in which you operate. So long-standing partnerships are critical. So I would go and I would have the fantastic relationships with McCann on the one side, Octagon on the other side. So our uh, holding company uh, that we were dealing with was IPG predominantly, And we be established. And every single one of my offsite meetings, the agency people are present. And it made a lot of people internally uncomfortable. I said, guys, you no, know, they are an extended part of our team. Just let's not be. And if there is any HR related thing, we can carve out one section for that, but we cannot exclude the agency. So we started bringing them in. And I would go and do a lot of sessions for my agency to inspire them, to inspire the best of the people on the agency side to come to my account and work on my account, et cetera. So I think it was very nice kind of a momentum that we gathered over the period of time. And uh, eventually here we are. It's a,
0: great, it's a great story, Rajan, a good playbook for any CM. In fact, this is a bit uncanny listening to you because I could lift up 95% of what you just said and tell you that's how I approached the job at p In fact, I even did a time and motion study on what people were working on.
1: Wow.
0: And it was, a, it was not a good outlook. And we, we started there by saying, if this, is this the marketing we want, or do we want to spend our time on something different that leads to competitive advantage? And that's where it all began. Fabulous lessons. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Listen, for our listeners in the book, Raja goes into these technologies that are in our life, demystifies them, and, and suggests ways you may use them to your advantage, you know, on your brand and in your business. But I want to go into just three areas right now, relatively briefly. And the first one is purpose. And the second one will be advertising. The third one will be loyalty. So I just want to go into these three a bit. You say in the book that purpose is an imperative going forward in this quantum era for two reasons. And it's just blood simple. First, it's a philosophy. And second, it builds trust. So (laughs) say a bit more of how you came to that passion. That That's a strong word that it's an imperative. And to use philosophy and trust also are big words. So say a bit more about that. Take us through your, okay. your thinking. So
1: if you look at uh, the societal changes right now happening, there is a complete erosion of trust in everything, right? From political leaders to media to everything, right? Even about brands and companies and advertising, they're all seen to be deceptive or they're making boatloads of money and enriching themselves at the expense of the vulnerable consumers, right? That's how it is. Now, consumers are getting to that tipping point where if something is not trustworthy, they're going to be rejecting it. That includes brands, that includes companies. I'll give you one simple example, Jim. I was talking to my wife, one of the very prestigious premium, uh, what do you call uh, face creams? Mm So she was applying it and then I was talking to her and she says, you marketers, you think that we consumers are idiots. I said, what is this? She said, look at this packaging, right? The packaging looks so big from outside. From inside, it's less than one third of what the outside suggests. So I so said, how long, we, you can kid me once, right? But, and you expect me to be very loyal to you and I know that I get carried away, say, oh, I got such a big package when you're only giving me so much and you're charging me an arm and a leg, et cetera. There is some level of deceit uh, that is perceived from the brand side. And she hates the company. She said, the moment I have another option, I'll go. So I did a focus group discussion amongst all her friends to, you know, and, and, I was, and the feeling is very universal. I think that we are coming to a moment in time where Uh, trust is going to be the biggest, single biggest uh, driver for preference towards a brand in the consumer's mind. Because that which is lacking, if you're providing, you actually stand out. And trust is lacking right now. That's what we need to get in. That's number one. Number two, again, when variety is so much in the market and functionalities are suspect, where do you go to? you go to something which is trusted. It might be new and novel, but you don't know, you distrust it. you don't go there, you go back to. It. So I think from various angles, it makes a lot of business sense to go for a trusted brand. And I'm not talking about just a B to C, I'm talking of a B to B as well, equally importantly, right? Uh, and the, so this is one part of it on the trust element. The second one is, how do you build the trust? We build the trust, other than being totally transparent to the consumer in as pragmatic a way as possible, which is easier said than done. The other two things which will help you gain trust very quickly is to genuinely be purpose driven, to demonstrate the good work that you're doing in pursuit of a purpose that the consumers understand and that they care about. That's the business reason why purpose is very important. Now, the other aspect of it is as a philosophy, right? I just tell, keep this telling to my uh, team as well. Suppose I'm sitting at a dining table and there's a magnificent feast that's laid out for me and I'm about to just start eating. And if a, a very hungry, malnourished child is standing in front of me, okay, he is hungry, he's very thin like a skeleton, standing right in front of me. Well, I simply ignore him and start gorging my food, or will I just give a little to the guy? Right? That is humanity. If I can help, why will I not help? As marketers, we are really privileged. We're a privileged uh, community. There is no question about it. We have resources. We have influence. We can shape cultures. We can start movements Right, we can create stereotypes—good, bad, ugly, whatever. We do thing. We can create. St- it's a very privileged position that we are in, and if you see that the world is so much in need of something or that the whatever catches your fancy, why would you not go and help? That's the philosophy aspect. So, both for the business perspective and from a philosophy perspective, it's absolutely necessary for us to do it.
0: Yeah, no, no. It's. it's uh, and I know you live your life that way with your team, which is very powerful. And we don't have time to get into all of that, but. Uh... But yeah, purpose is where people get tripped up on purpose, and 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 purpose greenwashing happens when they don't do what you just said, right? It's a business strategy. It's a business philosophy. It's a it's a way to build trust with your employees, with your partners, with your with your consumers, customers. So that was a it was a it was a good um, good lesson in in purpose is serious stuff. It's not a campaign. It's not, a, it's not a piece of cause marketing. No. You talk about that in the book. It's a philosophy to, to grow your brand and to be a better force in the world. Absolutely. So the second topic is advertising. And you say advertising as we know it is dead. And I, I have, I've heard that since my career began many, many years ago. There have been books about the death of the 32nd spot and all this sort of thing. So I want you to talk about Why it's different now. And you say advertising as we know it is dead. Mm -hmm. You don't say advertising is dead. Advertising as we know it is dead. Why is it different now?
1: So firstly, as marketers, we keep saying that we have to be very sensitive to consumers. We should sense their needs, the felt and the expressed or unexpressed needs. We have to satisfy them. We have to create a seamless, beautiful experience for them. So we have got all kinds of experience, designs and all that that we do. All those, if you agree, are correct. Then the question is, is advertising addressing any one of those points? And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So as a normal human being, and from India particularly, I watch a lot of movie songs. We have got song and dance, and I really enjoy them. It's some weird stuff, but I love it so i'm watching a song on youtube suddenly at the end of 3 minutes i'm interrupted my song gets stopped and an advertisement plays i hate it and i'm waiting for that skip button to come the moment the skip button comes i click on it and then my song resumes but by then you know you cannot break a song part 1 and part 2 that's what is happening as an example in this case now to make life more torturous youtube is introduced two ads not one so it's just one off two and two off two. So I'm waiting now for two times to press that skip button, which is pathetic. And as a consumer experience for me, I said, no, this is crazy. And after you do it at a few minutes, you see that it's actually a lousy experience with so many ads coming at you in the right in the middle of what you're trying to do. So you move away. The savvy customers, consumers, not specifically in the context of this particular video channel, but they have started installing ad blockers. The estimates for ad blockers are anywhere between 600 million and 2 billion. That means it is at scale and growing about 30% per year. So consumers are saying, I hate the ads. Therefore, I will do everything to block the ads. So if I'm tech savvy, I put an ad blocker. Okay, then there is a humongous number of people who are going to be, who are paying money and going to ad free uh, platforms, whether it is Amazon Prime or Netflix. Netflix three weeks or four weeks back came out with their numbers having crossed 200 million subscribers who are watching a ton of content. So their attention and time, which used to be on ad channels, has shifted to ad-free channels. Now on top of uh, Amazon, uh, uh, what do you call uh, Netflix, you add Amazon Prime, you got Hulu Premium. YouTube also has got their own YouTube Premium, which is ad-free. People, if they're migrating to that at scale, what do you do as a marketer? People are voting with their wallets and saying, I hate your stupid ads, don't bother me with them. I, as a marketer, when I put on, when I am behaving like a normal consumer, I hate your ads. So when I put on my cap as a marketer, how can I do it to you? That's not correct, right? So therefore, it has to change. Advertising as a mechanism to tell our stories has to change. No question about it. Now, look at the other one, effectiveness of ads. I have done so much of analysis of data, both for Mastercard as well as some of our clients and tons of it, right? The effectiveness of ads is highly dubious and it is coming down and down and down. Why? Because you've got 3,000 to 5,000 messages which an average consumer is being bombarded on an average day. They have a span of attention of less than eight seconds, which is less than that of a goldfish, apparently. And through that small span of attention, you are ramming through five thousand ads, and expect them, expect your ad to stand out, cut through the clutter, make an impact. I think it, the whole ecosystem, therefore, sucks as far as this aspect is concerned to me. That's why I keep saying advertising is actually on the downhill, on the path uh, of downhill path. Now oh, look at the other side. Uh, when you are looking at the entire ecosystem, it's dramatically undergoing a change. Many companies are saying, I don't need advertising agencies, we will do it in-house. There are companies which are completely not even having advertising at all to start with. They are only based on influencer marketing, particularly if they are startups. Right, MasterCard, we have shifted substantial portion of our advertising budget to experiential marketing and to influencer marketing. It's moving into that kind of... So I'm seeing this trend happening more and more and more. Yes, the overall industry statistics might tell you that the decline is not there at this point in time to the same extent. But my point is I can bet on this. Come a few years down the line, advertising is not going to be what it is today. This is one uh, I, would, I would say. The last one I would say is look at the not lack of transparency and look at the processes in the world of advertising up front. No, but there is, why do we need to even go for upfronts? And then it, that sort of keeps going on as one of the big things, you know, you have to do it and so on. One issue we have got. Then the other thing which is going to happen is lack of transparency. And I think it's 2016 or 2017 where there were the K2 report and, uh, you know, the kickbacks and all that.
0: It's so, a security firm looking into the whole process of how do you plan and place and pay for an ad. Yep.
1: Correct, right? And then we have got the brand safety and security issues in the ad ecosystem, mm-hmm. So I think there is a lot that's going to change. Blockchains are going to come in and there are going to be regulations which will be very different. Uh, So I think the way we know advertising world today is going to completely change.
0: Now, you also talk the third area is loyalty programs. And of course, they are ubiquitous, right? In retail and financial services, travel and on and on. And you call for them also to go through a pretty dramatic change. So could you give our listeners a piece of advice on how they should be thinking about their loyalty programs if they are running loyalty programs, and many of them are?
1: The one-line answer is abandon those loyalty (laughs) programs and reinvent new ones. And I'll tell you why I say what I say. I was actually looking at one article on bbc.com where they were interviewing people in a relationship. More than 70% of the people have admitted to having cheated on their partners. Now, without making any value judgment, that's not in my place to make value judgment on that, but the two questions I asked myself are, on the one hand, people have made some kind of a commitment, explicit or implicit, in a relationship where loyalty is expected. Mm -hmm. So they made that commitment. And on the other hand, they're aware of the consequences. If they are caught straying from the relationship, There is a reputational damage, there could be a financial damage, there could be emotional damage to the people they care, etc. But still, in spite of the commitments and the consequences, people, a vast majority of them, seem to not be loyal. Now, assuming this is true, that's a big assumption, then I said, why is it as marketers we expect people to be loyal to our brands? Brands are so much lower in the hierarchy of things that matter in people's lives. And why will they be loyal to us? Then I started digging in a lot deeper into the subject of uh, loyalty or fidelity, call it whatever it is. And when I went into the whole thing, there are not too many studies and many studies probably they're understated because people may not admit to what their behavior is. And it's a very different kind of a thing. But I found that this was very pervasive, this kind of a dynamic. So I said, my God, we should really think about it. Why would customers be loyal to us? Then the other aspect is, if you go to most of the British colonial uh, countries, including India, there used to be a small a sticker that would be put, put behind the cashier or the checkout clerk. It says, customer is our king. This is before gender balance mm-hmm. you know, came to be uh, you know, viewed. So, customer is the king. And this account, we had to serve our customers because he's or she is the king or the queen. Now, who is loyal to whom? Should the king be loyal to the subjects or the subjects be loyal to the king? So you talk to consumers, they expect the brand to be loyal to them. Whereas we as marketers, we expect that by throwing a few miles or cashback or whatever else it is, that customers are going to be loyal to our brands. I think we are kidding ourselves. So we need to totally rethink the entire concept of loyalty. I tried to give one framework in my book, which I call preferential management platforms. We need to do that. We, you know, Procter & Gamble, I guess, is the one who has come up with the concept or the terminology of moments of truth, right? I think the key thing is at every point of interaction, at every moment of truth, we'll call it, whatever, the brands have to be able to influence consumers in terms of their preference to their brand. Uh, either saying that I'm having a consumer once and I keep feeding them miles and cashback and reward points and all those kind of things. It's not going to work. If I look at myself, I have got Costco membership I got Kroger's membership. I got Amazon Prime. Now, where is my loyalty? If you look at the airlines, I got literally all the airlines loyalty programs. Then I have got all the hotel loyalty programs. I got all the car rental loyalty programs. So, is that Me even too. loyalty? Right. Exactly right. So, it's I'm not. I'm feeling loyalty very complex program. right
0: now. <laughs> you lay out in very simple terms this world we are in, and you list at the end sort of the characteristics of a CMO to win in the quantum era, the fifth paradigm. How do you recommend here, as we close out our discussion, how do you recommend a CMO to get started?
1: So in a Beyond reading your book, way. which I think they should do. <laughs> you just preempted me. <laughs> but on a serious note, uh, first is I think it's imperative for them to educate themselves. It's time to invest at this point in time to upgrade their knowledge about all these emerging technologies. You know, I devote about five hours every single week to learn. And if I can do at this stage in my life, and at this age in my life, I think many people should be spending a lot more time, right? And it's critical, number one. Number two, they should look at their teams because not everyone can, be, can have the aptitude for everything. So you need to make sure that even if you are not blessed with the right and left brain capabilities to be a Leonardo da Vinci, collectively as a team, you could be a Leonardo da Vinci team. Have people who complement each other and have deep expertise in each one of these areas. I think it's going to be extremely critical. That's number two. Number three, one of the things I always find uh, very effective is if I'm trying to convince my CEO or my board or my peers, One of the best methods I found is to get somebody from the industry to come and actually talk on that topic. The truth told by an outsider is seen to be more truthful than something which is told by an insider. And and, and that's something which they have to leverage. In many cases, for example, they they bemoan, you know, we are not getting the prominence and our people are undergraded compared to somebody else. Uh, and we don't get the right credibility or right uh, value, or right recognition, or they don't understand this and then they're ramming this down our throats, et cetera, the complaining is not going to help. If you have been trying, that's great. If not, call somebody. Now, for example, Jim, you know, with your credibility, I think you, you have been a role model to me, right? So for somebody like you, for example, if he's coming in and actually talking, you have seen multiple companies, you have been the CMO of Procter & Gamble, so your credibility is unquestionable. So I think, can I take advantage of someone like you to say, hey, can you please come and talk to our board? And I'm sure you'll be happy to do it. And that would be such a value. They should really think of leveraging external sources like that to come and talk and, and bring about the right kind of a cultural change internally. And I would last thing I would say is have training programs for your entire talent. Uh, you know, they can be self-study, digital programs, they can be book clubs, they can be guest lectures, they can be training programs they're sent away to, or give job rotations, whatever it is, they need to be a comprehensive uh, talent skill upgrade that has to happen across the teams. I think that's something they should as well do. And you know, uh, all of this, in fact, I did talk about by uh, in the book, but at one point, I don't know if you are aware of it, uh, Jim, because it has happened only last week. Aura as of Friday, is that my book got into the Wall Street Journal bestseller list? So I feel oh, very grateful. Fantastic! Like
0: Congratulations! That. Thank well, you! A, Thank you so much. That's a good sign that people are investing in themselves. Yes. And their teams. <laughs> and their teams. Indeed, indeed. Raja, well done. Hey, one last question. Uh, this is a great book. It's being well received. Do you have another book in you? Do you have an idea for a second or a follow-up?
1: Yes. I have made a list of three books I'm going to write, each one in a very different field. Uh, and I'm excited about them. One is in the healthcare, one is in personal well-being, and the third one is about dogs.
0: These are all areas that you're passionate about and have experience in. You yes. worked in healthcare earlier in your career. And that's and
1: I'm right now also managing the healthcare business yeah, at MasterCard. Yeah, that's right. that's right. Super.
0: Which one's first? The dogs? The healthcare. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, yes. it's... It's needed, absolutely. So Raja, this has been a wonderful conversation. Congratulations on the book. Congratulations on your Spanish and congratulations on your terrific example you were setting for so many CMOs uh, in this world of, of renewing ourselves and, and, uh, and leading brands that are winning and attracting people in these very, very important times.
1: Thank you so much, Jim. Always absolutely a pleasure. Uh, to chat with you. And it's an honor and a privilege to be on your platform. Thank you so very much.
0: Thank you, Raja. That was my conversation with Raja Rajaminar. His new book, Quantum Marketing, is available right now. The one most powerful thing I took away from the book was his final advice to CEOs in the book. And he says, CEOs, when you hire a CMO, hire a professional someone who understands marketing, is passionate about marketing, and can lead their marketing team. Too many companies have the marketing head, the CMO, as a rotating position. And it's not fair to the person, it's not fair to the brand, it's not fair to the company, and it's not fair to the marketing head's team. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed, so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.